to be a daughter, to be a wife, to be a woman in a world that discounts an entire gender, to be the last hope of a king who would risk everything, even your own life, on his legacy, to be ready to receive your birthright only to have it stripped away by misogyny and fear, and to be the final vestige of love and trust a father has left, overshadowed by a prince who was promised yet never to be. How can anyone hold such responsibility as this and be unchanged? What harm has love wrought? What agony does hope give birth to? Yet through a woman's pain, can the world be reborn? This is a watch party of ice and fire. We are your hosts, Solar. Not today. Constance. Hello, everyone. Uzma. Greetings, lords and ladies. Morgan. Salutations. And myself, Sam. In this podcast, we'll be talking everything and anything Award of Ice and Fire. In this episode, we are talking about the first episode of House of the Dragon, Woo! the heirs of the dragon. Huzzah! <laughs> In this episode, we open with Viserys being elected king at the Great Council of, of 101 AC. We are in, reintroduced to King's Landing after watching Rhaenyra ride through the city on Cyrax. We saw Daemon Targaryen, his most Matt Smithy Smith Smith, and his rivalry with Otto Hightower. The grandiose tournament going on at the same time as the brutal birth and deaths of Aema and Beleriand Targaryen. Rhaenyra Targaryen named as Viserys' new heir to the detest of Daemon Targaryen. And finally, the reveal of Aegon the Conqueror's prophecy, the Song of Ice and Fire. Be sure to Called listen it. and pay close. <laughs> Be sure to listen and pay close attention, as you can elevate your maester's rank and win links and prizes by listening to the podcast and answering our trivia. Before we get into the trailer, we're starting with our segment for the love of lore, where I will be going over anything and everything involving the history, culture, and customs in the world of ice and fire. The council will then discuss the lore and how it affects the current episode. In today's lore, we are talking about the small council. So what is the small council? Uh, the small council is a group of appointed advisors that help the king to make de decisions and run the day-to-day -day activities of the kingdom. It started with Aegon the Conqueror, but without the Master of Whispers. Uh, it's chosen by the king, or people are chosen by the king or the regent at the time. People can be chosen for political reasons, family, or they're actually good for the position. That is quite rare. Uh, king is the only one who makes the decisions after being advised by the counselors. Um, they are considered lords no matter what their birth is or their nobility. The council meets in the council chambers located in the Red Keep, and as I learned today, thanks to Constance, uh, the small balls that they put into these plates are how they clock into work, which I feel like is something that we could probably use for our, our today leaders, honestly, or real life leaders, I guess. Uh, if the king is not present during meetings, the hand will sit in their place. Depending on the king, the council may hold more responsibilities. Uh, some kings are honestly just not bothered uh, to handle the day-to-day -day activities of the realm. 
Uh, the council positions, we have seven different positions. We have the Lord Commander of the King's Guard, who is the leader of the King's Guard. Um, in the show, this is Ryman Redwine. Uh, with the Master of Whisperers, again, this was not created by Aegon, or yeah, Aegon the Conqueror. Um, this is the spy master of the king. Uh, they gather intelligence from all over King's Landing, the Seven Kingdoms, Essos, and essentially anywhere that they have informants. Uh, this was created by Mager the Cruel with Tiana of the Tower being the first Master of Whisperers. Uh, kind of was like an unofficial title at the time, but then was created for her essentially. Uh, we have the Master of Ships, aka Lord Admiral. Uh, the commander of the Royal Fleet, they're in charge of building warships, putting together crews, and handling any naval operations. Uh, the Valerians are known for holding this position, and currently in the show, we have Coralus Valerion as the master of ships. Don't forget shipping. Oh, and shipping. <laughs> we have the master of laws, uh, expert in the realm's laws, advises in handing out justice. Uh, this is played by, or not played by, but in the show is Lionel Strong. We have the Master of Coin. This is the financial advisor. Um, they basically manage and keep record of all the royal treasury. Uh, they borrow money, they collect taxes, and they also oversee many offices that pretty much involve anything dealing with gold. Um, in the show, this is uh, Lyman Beesbury is the Master of Coin. Then we have the Grand Maester. Uh, the Grand Maester advises the king in all aspects. Uh, back when Aegon the Conqueror first took the throne, he asked the Citadel for a uh, Grand Maester to essentially help him. Um, he is a Citadel representative. Um, he is uh, elected by the Citadel. Only the Citadel can remove him unless the king takes it upon himself their self and kills them. Uh, we've seen that many, 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 many times. Uh, and this is Melos in the show currently. We have the Hand of the King. Uh, this is the main advisor and the second most powerful person in the kingdoms. Uh, they command the king's armies, they draft laws, they run the day-to-day, -day, and sometimes they just stand for the king. Uh, some hands have been seen as the actual true rulers of the kingdom because some kings are not fit to be king, uh, the hands are usually just better at, at the job, this and that, all the rest. Uh, some of the quotes you sometimes hear about the hand of the king, uh, what the king dreams, the hand builds, or better yet, the king eats and the hand takes the shit. Uh, and in the show, this is Otto Hightower. Um, what do you all think of the small council and how did you like how it was portrayed in the show? We'll start with you, uh, Solar. I'm reminded of a quote from Samuel Clemens. I want you to think of an idiot. And now think of a member of Congress. Oh, wait, I repeat myself. Um, the small council is a very, very necessary position because very few leaders can be informed of every single department. Every leader has a chief of staff and they, you, you have to be able to delegate. That's 90% of leadership. Um, so it is a really important position. However, as the king or whoever sits the throne has a job for life, but not for long, um, the small council, the Congress, the, the privy council, as it used to be called in history, maybe Morgan can, um, correct me or back me up on that one. Um, I'll back you up. It was called the privy okay. council. Yes. Yeah, so, um, 
always tends to be made up of the most powerful people and i don't believe that power corrupts but i do believe that it reveals and it attracts the most corruptible so it's let's call it a necessary evil that's kind of how i feel about it i want to add to that a little bit or or kind of contend with it i don't know that the small council is always filled with the most powerful people I think some very powerful people do step into the small council, but I think some people become so powerful just by being on the small council, right? Oh, like, see, we're, well, you're talking how. I was just talking what. Yeah, the position yeah. itself creates the most powerful people. But yeah, exactly. the people that get, you know, the people that get on it tend to be revealed as snakes. So many snakes. Snakes of land, air, and sea. And spiders. Hmm? Yes, but no one weeps for spiders. No one weeps for spiders. No, no one does. Uh, but yes, uh, as I stated in a previous episode, and as Solar just stated, the uh, the small council uh, is heavily inspired by the privy council uh, that was uh, the basically the council of the monarchs of England, um, famously often portrayed in uh, the Tudor dynasty. Uh, when it had a lot of power, but still uh, deferred to the monarchy uh, before such things became more akin to cabinets, which is the most apt uh, comparison today, uh, presidential cabinet or prime minister's cabinet. Um, Because they're not quite like Congress, in my opinion, because Congress has a vote. Congress has a say. They can actually like make things happen. The uh, the small council can just suggest very very strongly, and hope that the uh, the king listens. What do you think, Constance? Well, um, it, it's like you're saying this is this is like a cabinet where they they advise. They they they're the most or they should be the most educated persons to present to the king the most realistic situation at hand so the king can make educated decisions. In theory, Mm -hmm. in practice, like any other political structure, it's full of sycophants and it's full of people that shouldn't be in that position or they've been in that position way too long, uh, but it's like a seat for life. Um. But I think in in theory, it, it it's a good idea. The king can't know everything, and he needs experts on subject matter to to advise him. So the small council is a is a good thing versus a king that just kind of makes his own uneducated decisions. Uh, Usma, what's your thoughts on the small council? I agree with you. In theory, it is a good idea, but uh, in reality, as we saw in House of the Dragon. They weren't helping the king much. They were mostly complaining about it. The only one who seemed to do a good job was Corlys Velaryon. Uh, he actually took out a real issue and the king didn't even listen to him. <laughs> like, what's the point of the advisor? Uh, <laughs> he didn't even listen, listen to what he was saying. And uh, the others, they were just mostly complaining, especially Otto Hightower, and especially regarding Damon. So I actually wanted to address a little bit about Corliss and Otto. So first of all, Corliss, right? So yes, he brought up some good points really early on. And then when he realized everyone was just going to start complaining, he's like, all right, I'm on the complaint train. (laughs) 
He's like, if this is what we're doing, <laughs> might as well do it. <laughs> you know, I, I got so many flashbacks to so many staff meetings. Um, and I'm sure everybody on this podcast has heard that where it's like, all right, we got this real issue that we got to talk about. Yeah, but Brittany's being a bitch. Oh, shit. All right. Fine. <laughs> Fine, we'll talk about Britney. <laughs> All right, fine, fine. You know what? Don't change the oil in the car. See what happens. You watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm seeing like three episodes from now when his issue actually bites all of them in the eyes. He'll be like, God damn it, I told you. I told y'all. Y'all don't listen. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I see it happening. And I'm just like, yep, he's bringing up some cogent points that no one's going to listen to like the smart person in the horror movie that suggests locking the door and leaving the campsite. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just love how he's like, yes, I support Damon, but okay, if we're going to tear Damon down, sure, whatever. <laughs> support my wife. My wife, number one. I love that. I love that moment. It was wonderful. He's like, yes, let's do things logically, but if not, my wife. It's almost like he forgot about his wife, too. He's like, oh, yeah, she would be great. Yeah, let's throw her in there, sure. See, I didn't see that he forgot. It was, I, yeah. look, mm -hmm. the decision's already been made. Damon's your heir. Look, I see what you're doing, Otto. I see what you're doing. I know you don't like him and all that stuff. But, yeah, no, nah, no, nah, we got this thing going. Oh, oh, we gonna be changing stuff up? Well, while we're changing stuff up, my wife has been here the whole time. <laughs> you know, we yeah, don't gotta exactly. go that far out, you know. I, I was right there with him. I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of like, yeah, no, no, support the system. Support. Oh, we breaking down the system? Yeah, well, then this is the one way that it makes the most sense. <laughs> you know, if, if we're going to break it, break it into this shape. All right, fine. You didn't listen to me about the pirates. On the, see what happens. You know, we'll see how all that, all that happens. Yeah. So, so that's exactly what I loved about him in that scene. Now, back to Otto. Now, Otto, like, Uzma, you were saying, like, how he was just complaining. Now, I didn't really see it as complaining, personally. I saw him trying to work around to get what he wants in the most placating way he could. He was weaseling. He wasn't complaining. He was making it clear that things weren't the way they should be, and he wanted to offer every possible solution so that he could get what he wants. But I don't think any of those solutions were actually what he wanted. All he really wanted was Damon out of the way because Damon's his rival, right? He, he kept coming up with different solutions, yes, but he wasn't just complaining. He sees Damon as a real threat. Damon is a kind of man that he is scared of. He wouldn't need to step up. He wouldn't need to keep moving Damon's position, keeping Damon from having any stability at all if he wasn't frightened of the man. Every time Damon gets any kind of stability, Otto Hightower changes things up. It's just the king started catching on because it became a pattern. That's why it looks like complaining now. I think it was solid strategy. I think it's probably because Damon, uh, as he said, uh, Viserys was weak. Like, uh, he, Otto is able to push his motives through him. Like, he wanted to change Damon's position, uh, like, uh, from small council. He made him master of laws, then had him switch to other positions uh, until he made him... He was... Otto was the reason that uh, 
Damon became the Lord Commander of the City Watch. Uh, so he was able to get what he want by uh, pushing uh, Viserys. But he knew if Damon became the heir, uh, Otto's power and influence will just go away. He won't be able to push him anymore. <laughs> right. If Damon ever actually inherited, Otto's power would be gone. And not only that, he'd have a rival on the throne who would probably make his life pretty miserable. Yeah, I don't think Otto would have a very high life expectancy if Damon <laughs> took the throne. I don't know. I don't, I don't. I don't see Damon killing Otto. I do see him, like confining him to Old Town, sticking him over there, and then taking away Old Bad Town's power. Um, now I gotta I see, say, I see Otto rebelling. Uh, you know what? Yeah, yeah. I, I see. Actually, no, because I don't. I don't think. I don't think the High Towers are that ballsy to be that obvious. You know, they're sitting up going, words, 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 weasel, weasel, not even cute weasel like a ferret. Look at me. I, I, I'm in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, I don't have much love for Otto Hightower, by the way. <laughs> um, th this particular episode made me just go, fuck this guy. God, you're you're like you're 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 like a bad um, mesh copy of Tywin Lannister and Littlefinger um, being not as competent nor not as smooth. I mean, seriously, it was just I, I'm, I'm like looking at this guy going, dude, will you shut up if my not politically savvy self can see that everything about you just says I hate Damon. I want him gone. Then all these other statesmen can see that. So shut up, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, just it's Damon's the heir. Maybe your daughter, hmm, 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 maybe her, May <laughs> you know. I will say I felt bad um, for Sir Strong or for Lord Strong, you know. I mean, he was practically Lord of three words because that's all he could get out before somebody cut him off <laughs> at the council. That seems that seems like it's gonna be a consistent thing going forward. I mean, yeah, it doesn't seem like he'll be getting many words in. Yeah, he's not all that strong. Well, you know, it's also a reflection of Sir Robert Strong. You know, it, it's that whole the the zombie <laughs> didn't talk at all. So we got a guy that has the same name as a zombie. So I have something to say. I'm sure you do. Anyway, Damon sucks. Damon sucks. Shut up, Otto. You know, I mean, that's that's what it's kind of coming down to, as far as I can see, as far as. Um, the way that they've illustrated the small council, just a bunch of infighting and machinations and not much governing. Which is accurate. You know, uh, that actually brings up a bit of how the uh, Privy Council was often formatted, was it was often filled by powerful people who had no necessary confident competence, but that the monarch just kind of had to keep them happy so that they didn't become a problem later on. I kind of feel like that's what strong is. I feel like... They're like, uh, Strong, you're here to placate. We don't really need you here. We don't really care. But, you know, it's useful to have you here for for reasons A, B, C, and D. And so you're going to stay. But please don't talk. <laughs> let the let the adults talk. Thank you. Ooh. <laughs> kind of like Edmund Tully, huh? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know that that's going to be a scene. <laughs> he did manage to speak one sentence and then Viserys glared at him <laughs> and he was like, I didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, who knows? Maybe he is the guy on the small council that's just supposed to say things like, damn, shit, and that is whack. You know, we never know.
Yeah. <laughs> uh, so moving on, we have the dragons in the details where Constance and Uzma will be going over small details you may have missed in the episode, as well as the fantastic costumes, props, and sets used after you, Constance and Uzma. All right. So we've got a lot of really great details that we're going to go over today. Uh, some of which were kind of obvious and others were kind of background, but made you scratch your head when you looked at them. Uh, so let's get Uzma's recording up and we'll start with the letter that was given to King uh, Jaharis announcing the next heir to the Iron Throne. It's written in beautiful calligraphy. It's a little tricky to read, but it does say, the lords here assembled, named Viserys of House Targaryen, son of Princess Alyssa and Prince Balon, grandson of King Jaehaerys I Targaryen, Prince of Dragonstone and rightful heir to the Iron Throne. And then it's signed with a chain link, which I'm assuming means that it's like the maester's symbol of approval. Yeah, so that would be... Um, <clears throat> That's the first thing that, that kind of got some detail notice was that, that, that scroll on the screen, which kind of sets up where we're going. Uh, even though Balon was the youngest son of King Jaehaerys, and Princess Rhaenys is the daughter of his elder son, Aemon Targaryen. So that's where they set up the, the son of the second son versus the daughter of the first son. And that's where all the conflict with the naming a woman of the Iron Throne comes. Then we have uh, Cyrax uh, landing with Rhaenyra. Uh, there is a, a detail you might have missed. As you can, uh, if you can uh, see it on uh, YouTube, uh, you can uh, see there is a nail driven on the left side of his neck. It seems uh, at first I thought it might have been a mistake. But when I watched the uh, funeral scene, the nail was still there. You can see it. Uh, and it almost seems like there is blood around it. Uh, so it seems like the nail was intentionally put there. Uh, uh, you can see it more clearly in the funeral scene. Uh, what do you think, Constance? Can you see the nail here? Yeah, I can see it. Uh, in fact, I think if you want to scroll back a little to one of the earlier shots, I think there's one on the other side as well. I think it's on both sides of the dragon. Um, yeah, there you go. Now, if you look, if you yeah. stop right here, if you look really closely on the right side of the neck... It looks like there's another one. So was it a whole rod? <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's kind of like um, a bit for a horse kind of thing where you could get the stirrup, you can get the, the guiding ropes around it. I think it's part of the dragon's flying system. I mean, we can't really see what it is. Or it's where they loop chains when they chain her in the dragon pit. It's they're definitely it's there for the chains, maybe. Yeah, they're definitely there for a reason. It's not. It's not an accidental, vi vi you know, vigil. But uh, mm -hmm. I'm. I'm thinking it has something to do with the way they fly, because it's not like where you put your feet. It's not a stirrup. So mm -hmm. maybe it's where you put the reins, or where they put the chains. Either one is my guess. Can it be a handhold for the person sitting in the in the it saddle? It could be if they're leaning forward. That that would make sense too. If it's a handhold. Yeah, I'm so glad it's not a uh, mistake because uh, some people were talking about it like it's some mistake or something. No, but it's not. It's intentionally put here. Yeah, so that's see. that's definite. Yeah. You you could definitely see there's another one on the other side of her neck too. And there's blood on, <laughs> like you can see the blood on the side. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. So we're gonna talk for a moment here about this costume. 
Uh, this is Ranra's flying outfit. She's dressed practically with pants and boots, wearing a divided riding coat, and she's wearing leather gloves, which she's pulled off in this shot. Uh, her overcoat has shoulders and wrist cuffs of overlapping scale. Now, these are soft leather. They're not hard leather. So this isn't an armored coat. This is more or less a riding coat, a, a lady's riding jacket. Uh, she has silver frogs closing it down the front and a chain belt with a couple little dangles, which clips at the waist and then comes around the back. And then there's a few metal studs on the actual shoulder pieces. This is a riding outfit, uh, typical of... Um, of an upper-class lady that's wearing something that can get dirty. It's still elegant. It's still stylish, but it's made to be practical. This is not a court dress. This is a riding dress that she wears because it's going to smell like dragon. It's going to get dirty. So she's wearing this in her very first shot. I think it's a really nice touch to the uh, the costumers showing that she's she loves dragons. Look at the dragons. Look at the scales. Next thing we're looking at is one of those details that made you go, what the fuck? Because <laughs> that's what it is. It's literally tapestries of people having sex. I think it was in Queen Emma's room. Yes, this is in Emma's room. There's one side, there's this uh, windows. Uh, and on the three other walls, there are these tapestries. Tapestries of, of various and sundry fuckery. Uh, now, if you look at these, they, they show people in various sexual positions, and there's, and there's several others in other parts of the castle. And it's hard to see exactly, but it looks like there's dragons involved. Wait, slow down and, on those shots. I'm taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> there's tapestries of men and women making love, women and women making love, men and men making love, and then dragons getting in on that action. Um Based on the art style, how it's very Grecian, it, it's very old world Greek, Greco-Roman, I'm going to say that these are Valerian tapestries. Since we've drawn the analog of old uh, Valeria and Rome, a tapestry a in that style. The yeah, there's side? a dragon. That's a dragon right there. I, I saw a, a more clear shot of this. And there's even a quote from some of the actors going, we were really confused <laughs> that there's all these tapestries of dragons having sex with humans. <laughs> Uh, so that's exactly what that is. That is a dragon screwing a person uh, in an orgy. Uh, so I'm going to say these are old Valerian tapestries that were brought over with them. And it's, uh, if, if anything, I think it's maybe for fertility to encourage the queen to be fruitful. Remember that the, uh, that the Valerians claimed that their white hair and eyes came from drag interbreeding with dragons. The blood of the, the blood of the dragons, exactly. So it would explain why some uh, Targaryen children are born with scales. <laughs> yeah, that that could also be part of, or the inbreeding. I gotta say that uh, it's brilliant <laughs> sex position that Game of Thrones is known for. You know, it's like yeah, it's it's a background of of sex, <laughs> just blaring you in the face during this whole. <laughs> segment uh so that's that's those tapestries so that's that's a fun detail <laughs> i wonder how i wonder how much the art department loved doing those sketches you know i think it's funny it's not porn it's for work they sound for like work. grandparents seeing porn for the first time like wait is that what okay it, nobody's that flexible you know I... they're playing leapfrog <laughs> uh let's let's move on to something a little uh a little more uh tame <laughs> <laughs> then we see the book uh, Rhaenyra and uh, Alicent were uh, talking about in the Godswood of King's Landing uh, 
and the letters uh, that were uh, mentioned were lashed together with ropes and cables. Nymeria's fleet dispersed at the coming of the first storms, sweeping them across the sea, east, west, and, and south, into something invested uh, pockets of basilisks, basilisk, and I think it's uh, isles. So that's the words we see, and on the and then Rhaenyra tears off that page, and if you'll see, there is a martel sun and someone on on the way uh, ship. After that, uh, you can see uh, that the book Alison is holding. There is a martel house martel sun, and inside that there is a ship. So. I think that's how House Martel's uh, symbol looked like uh, when uh, Nymeria first came to dawn. You can see a close-up shot. What do you think about this, Constance? I think so, because the defiant symbol, the defiance of Dorne, really didn't come into play until they were threatened to be subjugated, right? So this this symbol with the sun with the ships shows a unification of the Dornish and the Roinar, uh, with the um, the unification of their two cultures into what becomes the modern Dornish. I think it's beautiful. I think it's a beautiful illustration and a, a really good symbolic melding of the two cultures. I agree. I wonder why they changed it to the simply the sun with a spear through it. Don't know. Maybe to reflect the the fact that they're it's a, it's, it looks more like a spear and a shield to de, yeah. to represent their defiance and their defense. I think is how they they took that in the future or latter parts of Dorne. And we can see the godswood, uh, which we didn't get to see in Game of Thrones, but it was there in the books. Sir Don, in fact, Sir Dontos uh, summoned Sansa uh, to meet her uh, meet her in the godswood. That's where they met, uh, met uh, around King Joffrey's death before they escaped. What do you think about the godswood in King's Landing? I think it's a beautiful touch. It should be there. I mean, that's, the godswoods were always in important locations. Uh, it makes sense that, it, uh, that, that there would be one there as a symbol of the faith, old and new. And yeah, it was in the books. So it's it's nice to have another book nod thrown back into the show. I love all the book details that they've put in, in the show. You can see uh, the sea behind too. It's very pretty. It's very serene. Then what do we have next, Constance? Uh, next we have the map that we were talking about Corliss bringing up the piracy and the triarchy. And uh, this was his concern when he brought it, the, the issue forth to the small council. And here we can see a map of what we call the Stepstones and the Disputed Lands. Now the Triarchy, which was starting to rise to power, was an alliance of the free cities of Mir, Lys, and Tirash, who were all Valerian uh, colonies at one point in time. Uh, they drove Volantis out of the Disputed Lands and started taking over, uh, fighting back against pirates and making the shipping lanes safe, which everybody was, you know, they talked about it and they said, oh, this is a great thing. But Corliss is afraid of their gaining power and gaining control of those shipping lanes and what that means. So this is a really cool map showing those details and reflecting his concern. Uh, you know, he's he's prepared. He came to the briefing with his notes ready to rock. 
This is a guy that knew exactly what he was ready to talk about. And the rest of them all just kind of dismissed no one, it. No one paid attention to it. <laughs> yeah, no one paid attention to him, which is kind of lame. But this this is a plot point. Do not dismiss this as something that you're just going to see as a one-off. This pay attention to the scene because it will make sense in the future. I think it also shows uh, how uh, smart he is. Like, he can see ahead... Um, uh, mm-hmm. he can see that it might be a problem like yes they are working in their uh, fa- favor uh, right now they are get, uh, ready, getting rid of the pirates for them but it can be a uh, problem in the future he mm-hmm. can see that but yeah. uh, the others are like they are just do- doing us a favor by getting rid of the pirates yeah they're so, not looking at the long term they're just looking at the short term which is part of Corliss's uh, genius is that he can see the long term and prepare for it yeah. Do you think Damon would have agreed with him if he had been here? Oh, Damon definitely would have agreed. Yeah. Mm. Um, they seem to get along. At least uh, Corliss uh, supported Damon. Okay, next we have uh, the partition. Uh, the tourney. Yeah. Uh, during the uh, in the tourney grounds, we can see the partition, and there are a lot of banners. Starting from the left, there is a. Banner with a red heart on a white field. I can't tell which banner this is. Then we have House High Tower, Bolton, and there's a black diamond on yellow field. And then there's House Chully, uh, House Manderly, and the one we were discussing earlier that we couldn't figure out the yellow sun on the blue uh, field. It's I think it's House Stokeworth. Because okay. that's who she, Rhaenyra, talked to Alicent about when they were jousting. Right? I think it's... Yeah, they brought up the Stokeworths. And we know and that's a name that gets repeated on occasion. And the reason they created a new banner is because uh, it's not mentioned in the books. They don't have a banner in the books. Uh, sigil in the books. Okay. And that then... would explain why we don't know it. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. new! <laughs> And then we have a House Lannister, uh, House Baratheon, and there's a ser- red serpent on black. I don't know which house it is. And then we have House Malister. Then there's the red. Then there's a repeat of all the banners that were previously there, and you can see the flags of all uh, these houses behind as well. What do you think about it, Constance? Yeah, I think it's a demonstration of all the houses that are at this tourney. Because we know that there's a great shot um, of Damon facing off against all these different combatants. And each one of them has their houses on display. And it only makes sense that they would honor each house of each combative lord. You know, each knight would get some props there on display in the field. So that makes sense. It's probably also to show which houses are participating in the tuning. Exactly, yeah. Then what do we have next, Constance? All right. So here we have uh, the close-up of the the shots. And, oh, man, did we have to do a shot of that? <laughs> a shot of Alicent picking at her nails when she's anxious. Oh, that's hard to look at. Uh, just because it's a sign of her nervousness and a sign of her uh, unse- insecurities. But you can see the interior of her sleeves, and her sleeves are really pretty up close. She's got some beadwork on there that's really nice. And we'll go into Allison's costumes at the end of the segment. I think it's her habit to, like, whenever she's stressed, she hurts her nails or something. Yeah. Uh, either she bites them or uh, in this scene, she's just uh, 
using her uh, other hand to hurt it and when uh, you can see when uh, sir otto uh, said to uh, to her that uh, she has to go to king viserys mm-hmm. she starts she doing starts, it again uh, doing it again yeah yeah and he noticed it too he said stop that <laughs> nervous habit i i think it helps reflect her innocence and her overall um lack of poise and polish uh, where where she is at this point in the storyline yeah uh the next mm-hmm. is a shot of emma's ring which i think is a butterfly or a bumblebee <laughs> it looked like a man to me like in uh sorry but uh it doesn't seem to be house aaron's sigil right so, actually it could so, be could be a bird in flight what do you then, guys think what 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 do y'all think about what this could be we know it's emma's ring Ooh, the rorschach ring hmm Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It look, kind of looks like a butterfly. They focused on it a lot, so I'm wondering if it matters in the future episodes. But to me, it looks like a butterfly, but... Yeah, I, I really know. can't make it out from my angle. Maybe it, this is a uh, moon and um, <laughs> an eagle? Uh, it, I mean, Medium to me, it looks bird. like a bumblebee, but... I can also, like, if I look at it sideways, I can see it kind of like maybe the tower with some scenery behind it, the high tower. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I got nothing. But it I was Queen Emma Erin's uh, ring, right? Mm-hmm. I think it was. he was holding it after her death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's her uh, ring. So maybe it's of some significance to Queen Emma. I guess we'll find out in the future. Yeah, I think it's just like his memento of her. Yeah. Is that a little A on there? It could be an <laughs> A. I don't know. It it's like you said, it's a roar shark test. <laughs> <laughs> then we have uh, Viserys uh, carving when uh, Alicent comes to meet her. And uh, at first, I thought it was uh, King's Landing, but now I think it's Dragonstone. You can see there's a tiny dragon. And uh, when you look at the whole picture, you can see the dragonstone uh, building we see a lot on the back. And there are long stairs in the center. So I think it's dragonstone. What do you think, Constance? Yeah, I was trying to decide. I didn't know if this was like dragonstone or a model of old Valeria. Uh, it, it's not this, King's Landing. At least this building looked like uh, dragonstone to me. And yeah. there are yeah, dragons uh, on the sides. Got the dragon well. skull there. Yeah, it it could be Dragonstone. That would be a really cool project if that's what he's working on. I mean, who knew he was into miniature terrain building, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a hobby that's hard to get into. But when you're king, you could afford it. Uh, <laughs> but I think that could be Dragonstone. It it's certainly not King's Landing. I I know that for a fact. Um, so and there are these paintings again. <laughs> yeah, there's there's more of the sexy time Valeria. So that's going to be a theme, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> that's just so weird. <laughs> it's like, of all the things you're going to put in the background, let's put in erotic tapestries. Hey, it's good to be the queen. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's all for how uh, the dragon is in the details. Back to you, Sam. Actually, we've got one more thing. Uh, go ahead and stop sharing it and we'll pick up my screen here. 
we're going to talk about the costuming of Allison Hightower. This is not not just a matter of this is what she's wearing. This is reflecting her journey as a character. So let's pull this up here and you can take a look at my screen. She's got several different looks that we're engaging with during the course of the series, right? She's got four costumes that we that we can make that we could definitely make out. The first is this one here, which is what she's wearing when she's in the palace with Ranra. And it's a pale powder blue. It's got some beautiful work on it with the embroidery uh, along that collar there. And it's basically a very innocent dress. That is the whole point of her look is innocence. She's Blue is often associated with uh, virginity. Like if you look at anything of the Virgin Mary, uh, there's all in, in the most Catholic uh, imagery, there's always that visual of the maid with that kind of look. Uh, so let's see here what she's got white shift on with, with little gathered ruff. She's got short sleeves with a long design. And she's got her hair down in a very innocent maidenly fashion. Now, when she goes to the tourney, it's a dress in the same exact color. This is her tourney slash best court finery dress because we see her wearing it during the investment ceremony at the end, too. It's got a V-neck with a little bit more skin showing, overlapping seams with a bit of a trim forming a diamond pattern, uh, sleeves that are split at the elbow with a more with a damask embroidery inside. And she's got, we saw earlier the shot of her fingernails, a little bit of golden beadwork on the cuffs there and on the dress. But this is what I find interesting, and this is, I think, a design choice. This overlapping style here that we can see of her gown is reminiscent of the King's Guard armor. I believe that this was an intentional choice to show that she is Rhaenyra's protector. She is her best friend. She is her confidant. She is her closest companion. She goes with her wherever Rhaenyra goes. I think that this was kind of like a visual to show that they go together. Uh, and then there's one more costume change. I don't have a picture of it here, but it's her funeral dress, which is a very Italian Renaissance style with a high black velvet collar and V-style banding. And then daddy steps in. Why don't you wear your mother's dress? And this is where we start to see the evolution of Alicent uh, from an innocent maiden to a pawn. Her dress is off the shoulder, black satin, black silk. She's got her hair half up and half down. She's got a whole fresh new set of jewelry, a whole fresh new set of headband on. And it's basically changing her entire look and her entire demeanor from this innocent child to a more uh, alluring adult. The whole point of this is to look at me as a woman, don't look at me as a girl. And so the costume evolution in this episode shows us the journey that Allison's going to be taking from a very innocent young maiden to a very manipulative or manipulated individual uh, who, who uses her sensuality and her sexuality like most women have to in this world. She uses it as part of her arsenal for power and control. So that's that's the evolution of Alison Hightower's costuming in the course of this episode. So I wanted to just point that out for our Dragons in the Details segment. Uh, but that's the last thing that I had on here. So we can go back to Sam now. Thank you for your time. Awesome. Thank you, Constance and Newsla.
Hello everyone, my name is Jordan Rennells, and with my friend Katie, we are both working to create and share art for all of our favorite fandoms at 4Cats Boutique on Etsy. We have bookmarks, so many stickers, earrings, prints of all sizes, super small, and all the way up to 24 by 30 inches to really show off all of your favorite characters. We have coloring books, keychains, and always more on the way. So if you want a Hobbit Hole bookmark, or a set of Legend of Zelda Korok earrings, stickers for all of your favorite Marvel characters, or a big wall art poster of the Night's Watch Vows words so that you can recite them every time you need to pump yourself up, head over to 4Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four and cats with a K. You can even use the code WATCHPARTY10 to get a 10% discount. That's 4Cats Boutique on Etsy. Next, we have our Raven's Eye segment where Solar will be taking you through the cinematography and directorial choices made and how they affect the episode. To you, Solar. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Raven's Eye. So I challenge you to open up your third eye and let's look at what we see through the camera. Now, there is an overall motif of this episode, and that is grandeur. In our opening scenes, we have a lot of, hey, guys, remember King's Landing? Well, this is what it looked like clean. <laughs> and um, there was a lot of that going on. But I want to um, I want to talk this week about the visual language used to communicate the character of Damon Targaryen. Um, there's been a lot of stuff that's been going on in the trailers going, hey, this guy's the bad guy. This guy's the bad guy. But then there's also the member berries of member watching this show, member reading these books. There are no good guys. There are no bad guys. Everybody is gray. Everyone is gray. And um, the dialogue in this in this show um, for the first couple of councils, we get the impression of Damon Targaryen as this demon, this monster as portrayed by Otto Hightower. And um, screw that guy, by the way. And um, but when we first really see Damon, we see a very, very, very large visual cue of Damon being juxtaposed with Jamie Lannister. We have Rhaenyra walking into the throne room and there's Damon just kicking it on the throne like, hey, my brother don't even know I'm in town. What's up? And um, much like what happened when Ned Stark got to King's Landing and there was Jamie going, so you want this? And um, um, there was a fun little scene in Valerian. I think it's a very wise directorial decision to have um, specifically Damon and Rhaenyra speaking Valerian to each other, you know, um, in a very, if you are bilingual or have bilingual friends, um, you'll notice that yourself or they tend to speak um, the family's language when speaking to each other. So I thought that was a very, very decent, very decent thing. Um, however, our first our first showing of Damon Targaryen is him being like, look at me. I am the definition of cocksure with my lack of eyebrows talking to Rhaenyra. Um, but then we get to see him at work. Okay. And this is a very, very important scene 
for the character. Um, what we have here is ah, the rallying of the gold cloaks. Um, I don't know if you guys can see it. Um, we have him rallying the gold cloaks and pushing out. Nope, doesn't look like you can see it, so I'll stop sharing that screen. <laughs> Let's hope we don't get struck by HBO or Discovery. Um, but we have them doing this scene where Damon rallies the gold cloaks together for their first night out on duty, and it is brutal, okay? He essentially gives them the Saruman speech. If you do not know pain, you do not know fear. Tonight you taste man flesh. And they go out dispensing the king's justice and showing um, and essentially making examples of people in the context of um, in the context of the crimes they've committed. It's very, very Old Testament style. Um, thieves are being pointed out, thus arms are being cut off. <laughs> um, and visually speaking, I wish I could show it, but for some reason my screen isn't sharing right now. But this really establishes um, Damon as the noble on the ground because a lot of the shots were showing back alleys and residences. Like this dude knows this city. This is his home. This is his territory. And um, and the interesting thing was the lesser crimes were being met out swiftly without trial and all punishment. Um, the scene itself was punctuated with Damon swinging the blade of execution, specifically Dark Sister, um, against a murderer. Um, I, I found this really stuck out to me because the lesser gold cloaks or the ones who weren't in charge were dispensing out the punishments for robbers and um, even the rapist getting gelded on screen was not done by Damon himself. He, he very much delegated those duties to the other guards. But when it came time to execute a murderer, the biggest crime that there was, he took care of that himself, which visually shows that he's not afraid um, to do the dirt or to have the dirty work done, but he will take the worst of the dirty work himself, which is really visually, um, visually brilliant in showing how suited for the Iron Throne he might be. Um, <clears throat> the next, um, uh, can I yes, add please. Add in please. something? It, uh, the way you described it, it kind of reminded me of Ned Stark saying, the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. Are you reading my notes? Is that it? <laughs> oh, seriously. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is exactly that. The, um, there, there is an old saying, um, a Nietzschean archetype, um, called the pale criminal who has the courage of the blade but not of the blood you know the the person that has no problem committing murder but not facing the reality of what they've done where Damon Targaryen is fully cognizant <laughs> he is fully cognizant and a true believer in the actions that he's taking um which as we'll probably talk about in the main segment um can be very very threatening to someone who's on the wrong side of him 
Now, the next couple of scenes that we get with Daemon Targaryen specifically um, that show his character is the fun little japes and snipes that they have in the small council where you can see he's not really a verbal player in the Game of Thrones, you know? Um, every single time um, King Ares um, complimented what he did or gave him like, you know, the credit for doing what had to be done. There was old Otto Hightower going, well, he might be good at Kingsguard, but he should be good with his wife. And he's like, well, my wife is ugly, but if you want one, you can have her. Didn't yours just die? You know, <laughs> and um, and it was very much not subtle, not not diplomatic it was dude i'd rather fuck a sheep than fuck my wife but if you want her you can have her i'm um you know um there's already sexual tension with my niece and i so um standard friendly conversation exactly however following that scene we have him with his paramour and him showing impotence and i think this is a very very important thematic note where the truest feelings that he has about insecurity and unsuredness, they seem to only show between Damon and his concubine. Um, this is really, really interesting because, of course, yeah, we get almost a full frontal of Matt Smithy Smith being the Smith. So you Doctor Who fetishists out there, you guys, you know, tune in to episode one. You'll only be mildly disappointed because we're about, I don't know, seven, eight inches off of full frontal. And... Um, um, but we do get full backle, so that might be something for you guys. Um, but outside of that, um, his inability to sexually perform, especially in front of the audience of everyone going, hey, look, the, the, the prince is in there getting down. Um, and Constance, could you remind me of the name of his concubine? The one in white? Miseria. Miseria. It's Miseria. It's the one that comes up to him pretty yeah. much saying, you know. You're concerned that you're going to get passed over, but you're not. You're doing all that stuff. By the way, I can call in two or three more girls for this. Um, and the next scene that we get with those two um, showing Damon's internal monologue and conflicted feelings is after the birth scene that I'm not showing you guys footage of. <laughs> Um, not that I care about our rating, but I've already seen it way too many times. And... Um, and when he's mourning the loss of his new nephew, um, it's also juxtaposed in a patented, trademarked um, Circle C, certain Circle R, Game of Thrones orgy scene where everyone around him is doing this and he broods like Achilles in his tent, <laughs> thinking about um, everything that went down and then having to put on the bravado for everyone that's watching all of his employees and the people of the realm so visually speaking and the way that the scenes were chosen for him um really shows the dichotomy of the character and the conflicted nature of what he has to do what he feels he has to do and what he's up against um not gonna give it all away guys you guys gotta watch the episode because i'm not bringing up the conflict he has with his brother y'all will have to tune in for that but overall um the two main points or the too long don't read skip to this part in the time and the um skip to this part in the video is <clears throat> the visual language of this episode was reestablishing the grandeur of this property being the i guess you can say pseudo pilot for the new show 
Um, and within that grandeur, um, there were a lot of interesting, interesting character moments. And the last point I'm going to bring up in this episode um, on that theme is the show starts. The very first shot of the scene is um, a black screen with words followed by open endless sky as we see Renera riding Caraxes through the air and it's like freedom awesome cool stuff great um you know the hey if you guys wanted dragons here we are we're opening with dragons and it showed the grandeur of King's Landing but as the episode went on the shots got tighter and tighter and tighter until we end with the close-up of Rhaenyra's face as she gets named the heir and the look of burden that she just feels on. So um, the movement of shots throughout this episode were very well-placed. They were very well-placed. Um, say what you will about the CGI. I don't see it, but I've heard. Um, but the camera movement, the angles that were used, and the storytelling of we open with a big world that's huge in scope and we end on a personal story is something that you might not notice, but your brain does. So what do you guys think about some of some of these points? Did any of that stuff jump out to you? I think Morgan is like almost like bursting at the seams on this one. Hit me. <laughs> so much, so much. <laughs> so like the, like the, what we had talked about last week, I think was that, this is a story not about all the houses of Westeros. This is a story about a family, right? Um, which is not the same as Game of Thrones. And I think that's exactly what this episode showed and what you're describing is we're go you're seeing the scope. You're seeing it saying, yes, this is all part of this world and this is what this world is. But now focus. Now come in and see this family and understand the family and understand where they're at and how much they can hurt each other without even meaning to. And that is just such a powerful message and so relatable on so many levels. And I, I, I loved every moment of it. And no, I could not identify the kind of shots or what have you, but what you described is exactly what I felt. Okay. Uzma, what are your thoughts on, on that, on the visual language of, of the episode? Did you, did you have similar feelings? Yeah, uh, but I mostly agree with what you said about Damon. Like, uh, he, uh, I agree that he didn't show, uh, like, he was acted, he acted tough in front of everyone. He did uh, show, uh, he didn't show any weakness to any of them, uh, except when uh, he, I didn't notice that part. And it was a really great uh, observation uh, I, that he did uh, when he was with Miss Arya and he was with, when he was with Rhaenyra. That's the only time it feels like you can see some real emotions on his face uh, because uh, that's, uh, and that's how uh, it reminds me of Ned Stark too, because uh, in front of everyone he showed a tough face. He only showed his real emotions to Cat in uh, when they were in the privacy of their chambers. That's the only time he showed his real emotions, and he also acted tough in front of everyone. And that's what Damon does too. 
and uh, when you look compare him to viserys viserys uh, seems to be falling apart in front of his council so in a way <laughs> i think he was right that seems uh, yes, to be falling uh, apart uh, <laughs> 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 maybe falling apart at the seams but i i i think it's obvious that he's falling apart so but continue continue so when he actually said it on the show uh, i was like why he, is he saying all these cruel, cruel things but when i think about it now uh, yes uh, it seems like he had a point he was uh, kind of right about this awesome constance you're being rather silent about this <laughs> i'm being contemplative ah. um what i got out of the visuals was it was like I remember we discussed earlier, like it was a buffet, right? Here's a taste of this. Here's a taste of this. Here's a oh, taste yeah, of this. Yeah. this. This episode gave you a smorgasbord of everything you want out of Game of Thrones. There's the gore. There's the sex. There's the dragons. So there's the gore. intrigue. There's the family drama. Yeah, the gore was a little a little heavy handed in my opinion. But, you know, like we said, we're not going to. We've all seen it. We don't need to go into it. Um. I think that the visuals were very strongly set to give you that this is the world that you remember, but it's different. Here's all the elements of that world that you remember, but these are the key differences between those two worlds. And I, I like what you're saying about Matt Smith and Damon showing emotion only when he's comfortable. He's a very strong individual and he has very few chances to be vulnerable around Rhaenyra, around Myseria. And Matt Smith is a great actor. I think he's done a wonderful job of reflecting that someone who has two very distinct faces. Yeah. I just wish either of those faces had eyebrows. I just, I, I can't get past it. It's, uh... <laughs> it's the high forehead and the lack of eyebrows that makes it very yeah, difficult. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, creative yeah. choice. So, yeah, so this has, you know, let us know what you guys think on all of our social media and um, through emails and stuff like that. But, you know, if you think, especially if you think I'm full of crap, I really want to, I, I really want to know what you guys have seen that I haven't. So anyway, this has been The Raven's Eye and back to you, Sam. Uh, and now for the main part of our episode, Fire and Blood, uh, where the whole council digs into some of the biggest moments that came up in the episode. Morgan, I believe you have some questions for us. Uh, of course I do. <laughs> uh, I like to go ask people questions. It's my thing, apparently. Uh, so, everybody, favorite scene or character? Now, I've got a lot of questions, so you got to pick one. So, uh, how about you, Sam, go first? Favorite scene or character? So, I guess if I was going to pick, I'm going to go with scene. And if I had to pick, I really liked the intro because I thought it was cool bringing us back to King's Landing. But I will say that I think my favorite scene was the very end where um, Viserys was telling Rhaenyra, making her the heir and telling him about Aegon's uh, prophecy of the Song of Ice and Fire. One, because I just really fucking like that that's cool as hell and two mm -hmm. i thought it was cool to see Beleriand's 
skull like looked as like a statue you know like in game of thrones we saw it as kind of this like tucked away collectible and like this time it was like it was like there like like you know it was lit up by the candles it was like i mean and you know it was like a point of like come and check out balerian skull i've got something important to tell you so like just to, just to see the balerian skull like celebrated and kind of like made it a big deal and like just that whole part i think that was my favorite uh what about you constance I've got the uh, the unorthodox answer here. My favorite character was the hype man at the tourney. Oh, the ma- <laughs> the, the the master of Sarah, the MC, the master of the master of revels at the oh, ceremony. Man. Yeah, I I thought that was such a small role, but he had such gusto to play it in. I mean, just think of that. You have I have friends that do jousting. You you and I have a mutual friend. Well, the three of us have a mutual friend that that does announcements for jousts. Uh, Danwell. And you have to, it takes a certain personality to be able to carry that kind of a crowd and momentum and energy and remember the heraldry of every single person that's coming up on those lists. Because <laughs> you don't have a list. He doesn't have a checklist. He has to remember who's fighting who. And so I, and I loved his costume, the, the red with the black. It very much and, reminded me of a beef eater, actually. It was very beef eatery, exactly. Yeah, the red, the red and the black was was very reminiscent of that. So, uh, although it's a bit player, he has no name. We'll never see him again. Uh, props to you, master of ceremonies at the tourney. And not only That's... did he have to remember everybody, but he also had to like remember it while everyone was getting their shit kicked in. Like, <laughs> yeah. Some guy just had an axe go through his head, and he's like, "Hey, so next up, coming up after he's got his head crushed, like good stuff." You yeah. know, I think he was yeah. pretty happy when those moments happened because then that was one less person he had to remember. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Master of Revelry, we'll call you Lil John. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and next up, we've got Otto Hightower. So, oh, what? Oh, he got his head bashed in. Uh, I guess next up, we got somebody from House Martell. Marta, anybody? Anybody? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> It's like watching the uh, the the MC parts of uh, A Knight's Tale, mm-hmm. which I it's not my favorite movie, but some of the hype work is just hilarious. <laughs> So that's that's me. Uh, Uzma, who's I, I, I have a bet. I have money riding on this. What was your favorite yeah, character? Or I have moment? kind of a feeling, too. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> I have a favorite character, but if I have to choose between favorite scene or a favorite character, I can only choose one, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm a tyrant. Then I'll go with favorites. <laughs> <laughs> Then I'll go with the favorite scene. Uh, that's the same as Sam. Uh, that's Viserys revealing about Aegon the Conqueror. Oh. Because <laughs> it. Um, okay, uh, I'm not very proud to say this, but uh, <laughs> when I watched uh, the <laughs> Queen Emma's death scene, I was really sad, and I had. Uh, I almost had tears in my eyes. But when I watched this scene, I actually started crying because the music, everything, it kind of brought me back to kind of like the Light of the Seven music. It was kind of like Light of the Seven music. And it was like I was watching season six because, and I had really hated season eight. So <laughs> I, I didn't uh, feel like I would feel this way about Game of Thrones again. And it was just, it just hit me. Like, yes, we are back and we are back to the good old days. <laughs> it was <laughs> so beautiful, the, uh, especially the music and everything. Uh, every- it made you fall so- in love all over again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, we've already discussed this theory in our previous episodes that Aegon the Conqueror knew about uh, this and this was the reason why he decided to conquer Westeros. We've already discussed this in our previous episodes. So if you guys uh, haven't listened to it, go check it out. <laughs> yeah, we called it. <laughs> oh, I, I guess that leaves me, huh? Okay, so I know you're a tyrant, so I have a very diplomatic answer because uh -huh. my favorite scene solidified my favorite character. And my favorite character in this episode uh -huh. is what made um, my favorite scene. And that was the tourney. Um, when <clears throat> the unhorsed knight lost his shit and started actually going violent against uh, the tourney people, I loved the queen that never was um because i'm watching the scene and i'm kind of going what okay cool which one of these is um sir ladybug of meat cute okay he's not there and um sure enough um she's just sitting there with her wine looking at her nails as nonchalant as everything goes going yep and this is where the day turns ugly yep um and she brought up, um, you know, juxtaposed against all of that violence, the, this violence is unavoidable because these are all knights that have been practicing fraternity in a time of peace. So they come here with fists full of steels and balls full of seed, and we expect them to be cordial. <laughs> Drink. I mean, she might be the queen that never was, but I'm calling her the queen of tea. I'm sorry. <laughs> because <laughs> I mean it was everything that made Cersei Lannister cool in one season just the amount of um, crap talking and the fact that Corliss was sitting right by her side going yep I don't know what they're thinking either you know so that scene did a lot to really set up um, which characters have common sense and much like you guys were talking about when Corliss was talking about the triad um, now we're looking at the players who really see the whole board in the same way that we're dealing with Varys and Littlefinger in the old game, in the old show. So yeah, that's, so she definitely is my favorite character of the episode, which made my favorite scene. So that, uh, they're, they're both there. Sorry, this is where you cut out my tongue for answering both questions. I get it. <laughs> well, uh, we will hear from Solar again sometime. I don't know when, uh, anyways, <laughs> Hey, hey, what are you doing? Uh, hey, leave me. Oh, hey, hey, hey. Yeah, yeah, out the back door. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, I, uh, my answer is just one of the answers because I'm a good girl. Um, <laughs> uh, my answer is uh, Rhaenyra Targaryen. Uh, she had my heart the entire episode. Right. Uh, she's talking like she's she's clearly rejecting the life that she is being put into while still doing everything she's asked to do. She doesn't want to be there. She doesn't want to do these things. She doesn't want to live this life, but she knows it's her responsibility and she's going to do it anyways. And. oof, I feel that. She does kind I of treat being a life, princess girl. like being a forklift driver at Home Depot, doesn't she? <laughs> yeah. Like, All right. I'm, I'm, I'm running late for work. Let me get to this damn small council. Here's your drink. Here's your drink. 
you know. Yeah. But she just goes forward. No matter what, she keeps going forward. She points out the problems, the flaws, the issues everywhere that she sees them. She's aware that things aren't right, that things aren't going well. And she just has to live and has to keep moving forward because what else can she do? And that's just, I, I empathize so much with that. So she was she was my character for this episode, 100%. You know, that's a lot of words to say that you two are very serious about cake. I love cake. <laughs> <laughs> Hush. Uh, anyways. <laughs> um, she was checking she was checking out that Sir Kristen cake, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, he's Dornish. <laughs> uh, so my second question, a little more serious. Uh, how do you feel about this episode's treatment of women? Yes, I'm going there. <laughs> Hard-hitting question. Yeah, uh, I'm going to start with the women. Constance, go ahead. Well, it was it was rough. Um, I think it it showed us that women in this world have little to no agency over their lives. Even a queen is subject to the whims of a king. You know, he didn't even stop and think about her. They said that they only gave her enough milk of the poppy so that they didn't damage the child. And you could tell that she was in pain that whole time. And it was not a pretty scene. And even with the queen that never was, she had her birthright taken away from her simply because she was a woman. You know, she she seemed to be qualified, educated, everything that would have made a good ruler based off everything we've seen of her, everything we know of her. But she wasn't a guy, so she got passed over. And I think that that's going to be a theme, especially considering the nature of the story at hand. I won't go into spoilers. But I think that a woman's choice is very important to the characters in this world. And we're going to see the reflection of their choices in regards to the men around them. How do they take agency back into their own lives? How do they take their destiny into their own hands? Which is something that even as today as women, there are lots of men that are trying to make decisions for us. And it's uh, how can we take back our own power, especially regarding birthing rights? Just pointing that out. Yeah. And that is something that the, the showrunners have said that they wanted to try to draw an analog to is that the women today are losing that right to decide for themselves. And I'm getting a little cheered up because it is an emotional issue. Uh, but I think that Hopefully we can see these women taking back control of their lives and making choices for themselves and dealing with the men that don't want them to make those choices for themselves, hopefully in violent ways. That would be nice. Uh, but I'm going to kick it to you, Uzma. What, what's your thought on this? I completely agree with you. I just don't get why people uh, so have so many problems. I see a lot of people saying they, sh- they are going woke. Like, uh, why do uh, this is a medieval series? And why, uh, if they are trying to give a show that women can gain power, 
आई डोंट सी वाई देर इज सो मच सो मैनी इशूज एंड रेजिस्टेंस टू इट लाइक वाई सो मैनी पीपल आर अगेंस्ट इट एंड यू कैन एज यू कैन सी द ट्रीटमेंट इन गेम ऑफ स्टोन्स वॉज काइंड ऑफ सिमिलर टू दिस इफ यू लुक एट एवरी सिंगल वुमेन वी हैव सीन इन द फर्स्ट एपिसोड क्वीन रेनिस शी वॉजेंट गिवन हर इवन दो शी वॉज शी हैड अ रियली गुड क्लेम एंड शी वॉज द डॉटर ऑफ द एल्डेस्ट सन शी वॉजेंट चोजन द मेजोरिटी ऑफ द लॉर्ड्स गैदर्ड एट द ग्रेट काउंसिल वोटेड फॉर विसरियस जस्ट बिकॉज ही वॉज अ मेल एंड इफ यू लुक एट एलिसेंट इवन इवन हर ओन फादर सेंट हर टू किंग विसरियस जस्ट सो ही कुड गेन फावर वेन वी लुक एट रेनिरा she had been with by her father's side for so long but he was only focused on uh, getting baron and it was only after he ran out of all options when it was when he couldn't even choose daemon anymore that only then he turned to rainira it wasn't like he suddenly became a feminist and yeah ye to women uh, power to the females no he had no option that's why he chose Rhaenyra. It wasn't by his first choice, and uh, same with Queen Emma Arryn. We all saw what happened there, and it was really sad. So, no, I don't see a problem if it if they are trying to make amends or like like if they are trying to show that it can be improved. The women's treatment can be improved. What about you, Sam? Um, well, I mean, you know, in Game of Thrones, like you know, we saw women have it pretty hard, but House of the Dragon, we're gonna see it a lot, a lot worse. I think like one of the like the other brutal parts of this episode was was when Emma was talking to Viserys before the birth and saying how she was like, "This is the last time I can do this," and even apologizing to him, and then having everything on top of that was just as worse. You know, like it's like, what the fuck is she apologizing for you know like i'm sorry i couldn't give you an air and then for him to do what he did and you know the, the rest of the episode was like you know i viserys like came off as like a sympathetic character well not sympathetic to us but to everybody around him and everyone was like feeling bad for him and i think that made me hate him even more as the episode went on was like all these people like you need to be there for him like you need to care for him him getting mad at the council and it's like kind of did that man so like i i it was like a that that whole scene was like and you know incredibly uncomfortable and it should make us feel uncomfortable and it was like extremely hard and and it makes me hate viserys and i don't think i'll be liking him anytime soon uh solar what about you hmm. so the question is how do we feel about the treatment of the women in the show thus far am i correct about that Yes. Like, could you repeat the question? Okay, cool, cool, cool. So with that, I'm going to say, um, I look at the treatment of women on screen and I see indicative. I, I see um, everything that this whole thing has been talking about, building up, showing. Um, <clears throat> and in truth, I have to applaud the writing when it comes to how horribly the women are tread not just in the visceral ways um the birth scene and the fact that you know Viserys didn't even ask her and let her make peace with what was about to happen 
that was like, well, <clears throat> way to at least, you know, um, way to let her know that she has no personhood. Because it's one thing if he made the choice to save the baby instead of her and any of that stuff. But he didn't even tell her that it was going to happen. You know, it, it was just, I love you. Now sit there and scream. And I'm just kind of going, dude, dude. And I thought <clears throat> in that scene, it very much showed the intrinsic and systemic um, ways that oppression can take root in a society. Okay. Um, the, the internalized, um, the internalized lessening or non-personhood when um, Emma was talking to Rhaenyra saying, we've got royal wombs. Our battlefield is in the birth bed. And it was like, yeah, it, it's good to know that you want to do these things, but this is your job. And, you know, just the so many layers that come in with the internalizing of that kind of tradition and that kind of culture um, was depicted very well um, for those of us who see that stuff and who see parallels of that stuff in a lot of subjects. It's sickening. I think the thing that really pushed it over the top for me <clears throat> was a very subtle thing, a very subtle thing that happened. Um, that it's I'm not even going to say blink and you'll miss it because these kinds of things are so internalized and it was the fact that when the Baratheon Knight mentioned the queen that never was and Otto was like you know you could have his, cut, his tongue cut out for that and Viserys was like eh, tongues don't you know let them wag their tongue it doesn't mess up with the air but Damon naming the kid heir for a day got him exiled <laughs> so tell the truth about the woman um in a snarky manner and it's like okay that's fine tell the truth about the about the dead baby boy in a truthful manner and get exiled that says a lot about what women mean you know and um yeah honestly it's sickening it is truly, truly sickening. And my God, do I love it. Um, primarily because it's good to see these things on screen. So people have a context for when complaints are made, for when um, there, there's a lot of stuff on in media that talk about how poorly um, people who are othered are treated. But they never... Uh, it's it's very rare that a show will show what othering looks like. And this episode did it on at least three different levels on six different occasions. You know, from Otto essentially saying, all right, well, the king is sad, so you go cheer him up and take the lube with you and wear your mom's dress. Um, to, what did you say about my dead baby boy? Well, what about what they said about your cousin? Shut up. I don't care about her. Yeah, that was my dead baby boy. Get out of the get out of the kingdom. Um, you know, even down to the fact that um, you know, the fact that the other women that were in the scene, specifically Queen Emma, everything that came out of her mouth came from a place of um not willful but compliant sub subjugation. You know, from the first time we see her on screen, when Renera comes to see her in the third scene, to her death. <laughs> um, 
it was very much in the old world. This is what women accepted. And it showed that and it showed how ugly that could be. So it brought up, you know, I, I, I was feeling a certain kind of way. And I love that I was because I got to see what the problem was um, within context in a very visceral manner in so many different ways, be it, be it conversation or a special effects team that better at least get a mention at the Emmys or get a mention at the special effects unions um, annual dinner. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah. It really says a lot when the only woman who didn't get, uh, who we didn't get to see getting a bad treatment was a whore. <laughs> right? <laughs> like Damon. <laughs> like Damon, uh, when he was exiled, he took Miss Arya with him. Yeah. What do you th- What do you think, Constance? Oh, I'd have to agree that. Yeah, uh, she was. That was the only honest relationship with a woman that anybody had in the entire series, so far. No, I mean, except for Alisane and Renera. Right. Yeah. The women well, can respect each yeah. other, apparently. Um. At least mm-hmm. when there's not a power dynamic between them, where one is directly in control of the other. Yeah, Morgan, let's what's your thoughts on what's your take on this whole situation? Yeah. Uh, what do you think, okay. Morgan? First I have to say that I couldn't watch the birthing scene. Like it was there, it was on the screen. I literally put my hands in front of my eyes. I could not look at it. Um But I listened to it. It was very, very powerful. Um I I hated every moment that I saw the women treated how they were treated. I noticed every little backhanded way that they were disregarded or discarded. Um, I absolutely want the representation of that in the show. I want it there. Gods was it hard to watch. Um, so, yeah, I I can accept it because I know that it's there for a purpose. It's there not only to show that bad shit happens, but that we have somewhere to go from here, and hopefully it's up. At least a little bit up. Even if we aren't going to break the glass ceiling or whatever, we can go up from here. And they set the bar real low for where to go up from. But that's the sad reality of the situation that we're watching. Um, And yeah, it was painful. Um, But it does need to be there. I do think... I, I I regret it. There were scenes I wanted to watch the 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 battle going on at the uh, at the tourney that was flipping back and forth between the birth scene and that. And because I couldn't look, I missed a good chunk of that. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> you said I, chunks I, I will about say, the tourney. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. So I will say, I, I, I understand their intention, making it look like, yes, in this case, the bedroom is a battlefield. Uh, the 
uh, in the after episode interview, they talked about how they wanted it to look like a battlefield. And, and I do want to point out that, yes, it looked like a battlefield, but it was not a battlefield. That was not a battle with two sides fighting. That was a massacre. That was one army slaughtering the people. That's the uh, that's the end of my statement on that. All right. Uh, so my third question, uh, Damon is often compared to Magor the Cruel in the episode. Do you feel he was more like Magor or more like Aegon the Conqueror? Let's start with Sam. Oh, I got to go first. That's so hard. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I... I get, I get the similarities to Magor just with the with his brutality. With Aegon, ugh. I mean, I don't think he's nearly as bad as Magor, but I think he's probably more like Magor than Aegon. Just just due to his brutality, due to his kind of like fuck everyone kind of attitude. Like I I think that I think I would say he I would compare him more to Magor. And Uzma, I'm so sorry for saying that. But <laughs> what do you think, Uzma? <laughs> You know what my my answer. <laughs> I would say uh, I won't say exactly like Aegon, but I would say he's closer to Aegon than Magor because uh, Aegon, when it came to punishing people or taking down his enemies, Aegon was also uh, he will be looked at as a as cruel by his enemies, and uh, same for Daemon. Yes, uh, Damon did go very far and he shouldn't have, but uh, he was punishing the criminals. He was, it wasn't like he was punishing innocence. And uh, it didn't hit me when I was reading the books. Uh, at that time, I, fo- I thought, yes, he was completely good. But when I actually watched that scene on the show, <laughs> it just hit different. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> what is he doing? <laughs> but... Uh, even knowing that he is uh, punishing criminals, it was hard to watch. Uh, but um, I would still say uh, Aegon, yes, uh, he punished. Uh, if, if anyone did, just look at Harren Hall, what mm-hmm. he did. Uh, so it, it wasn't like Aegon was completely merciful. Uh, he did punish he people. but was uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's why I think. And uh, when you look at uh, Damon, he only kills his uh, enemies or the people he thinks, uh, like uh, when he's uh, the Lord Commander of the City Watch, he's punishing criminals. So I don't see him punishing uh, or killing innocent people. So that's why I'll go with Aegon. <laughs> what do you think, uh, Solar? Um, no question, Aegon. He is so much like Aegon the Conqueror. It is... It is hilarious to look at. Like the only thing that he was missing was Blackfire. I know he had Dark Sister, but still, still, he, he was missing Blackfire. Because, um, you know, he was compared a lot to Magor the Cruel. But he was compared to, uh, that comparison was made by Otto fucking Hightower. Or should I say, you know, fuck that guy, Tower. Um, because, you know, real talk. Um, one... Uzma brought up a really good point. It's one thing to read in print. Oh, they came along and they did blah, 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 blah. No, that is ugly. (laughs) Conquest, war, violence, criminal. That's all ugly. It is really, 
you know, I mean, the only thing that could have made it more realistic as far as that scene um, of him gathering up the criminals and making examples of them and putting those body parts on a cart was if we had smell of vision okay that <laughs> they call it dirty work for a reason in military stuff they call it wet work for a reason however <clears throat> it existed for a reason you know when the small council met to scold him for that he's like we got 300 really rich people coming through this town you want them mugged <laughs> like i we had to show the people exactly what would happen to them if they didn't fall in line this is the language they understand this is the language we spoke job is done um and i was right there i was right there with corliss valerian going yeah the people got to fear the city watch and this is coming from someone who viscerally does not like cops <laughs> I like police, don't like cops, but um, but he went out there, he took the new police force, he made them cops to say, look, if this is, if you do these actions, this will happen to you. Much like um, Aegon, the conqueror, with his sister wives and their three dragons said, if you perform the actions of not bowing to me, this will happen to you, okay? The Starks got it. The Lannisters got it, <laughs> you know, um, but the criminals just, you know, they just wouldn't listen. So, you know, I wish there had been a trial. You know, I wish there had been a little bit more rule of law, but that's just my Americanness coming out on that. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I would absolutely say much more like Aegon the Conqueror. Also, not like Megor the Cruel, because if he were like Megor the Cruel, I wouldn't have to keep saying, fuck Otto Hightower. He would have killed him in the small council at that moment. Wouldn't have said anything about, you know, well, uh, too bad one of us got a dead wife. No, there wouldn't have been any crap talking. Megor would have knifed Otto right then and there. Oh, you snitched on me and trying to and trying to get the current king to fire me and get me out of the realm? Dead. That was how Megor the Cruel rolled. Not just Otto. Huh? <laughs> Not exactly <laughs> exactly there would have been there would have been some murder going on in that small council so yeah i i definitely gotta say Aegon the conqueror you know he suffers a little bit of crap talk sets an example and goes about his day so you know again had he been more like magor auto knifed at the table no questions <laughs> you know I would like to add in, there was one aspect where he was closer to Megor, the number of wives. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> we haven't gotten there yet. We'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, no, that's just this episode. We're, we, we... Constance? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to lean with everyone else towards uh, more like Aegon the Conqueror, because he did not do the job for cruelty's sake. He did not do this simply to cause pain and bust heads and break balls and cut off balls and things like that uh he did it for a reason it was an executed measure it was a shock and awe tactic uh and it was effective it was what the city needed because if you listen to the dialogue they're saying that the city was not safe until and that the city watch was not an actual force until they gave it to Damon and Damon started reorganizing it and Damon started making it effective and he started organizing them into an actual fighting force as opposed to probably just being, you know, dude, you, you could bribe real easily <laughs> and get away with murder, literally. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm leaning towards Aegon the Conqueror versus Megor the Cruel. 
although he does have a, a temper, which is probably what they were afraid of. But we have to point out that most of the times he's being compared to Magor was by Otto fucking Hightower. Fuck so it was a guy. very yeah yeah it was a very very biased opinion uh, towards 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 Damon. So uh, Morgan, what do you think? Who which side do you fall on? Well, uh, I asked the question in a very misleading way, uh, so that I can have a different answer than all of you. Um, <laughs> oh, you tyrant! <laughs> So, I don't think he's like either of them. Uh, I I can see qualities of both, yes. Uh, Because, first of all, uh, yes, he's doing the things with a purpose, and he's making examples of people just like Aegon did, right? He also has a strong temper, just like Maegor, and he is crude and not particularly personable, like Magor. People don't like him for a reason. He doesn't have a lot of friends in high places, like Magor. However, unlike Magor, he's not actually all that violent for violence's sake. He doesn't go around losing his temper, not violently anyways. Everything he does is very controlled. He doesn't have the communication skills that I imagine Aegon had. He doesn't have the the vision, the 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 quite grandiosity that Aegon had. He doesn't have the ambition that Magor had. What he has is I think a very different perspective because even though he doesn't seem content. He seems to me content to serve his brother. He may want to rule someday because it's his right. I don't think he wants to rule for ruling's sake. I don't think he actually wants to be in charge. I think he has ways of organizing things. I think he likes to be uh, controlling of little things. I don't think he wants to be a king. I think he only wants it because he should have it by the rights that he knows. And the idea of not having it is an insult. And he is not one to take an insult. I think Viserys said something similar to... What was that? Uh, Viserys said something similar to that uh, Daemon doesn't want power. He won't kill uh, Viserys to get uh, power. Yeah. I, I think he is a very complex person. And I think I think in the scene uh, where it's after uh, Viserys's wife and child both die and uh, Damon is toasting and we don't actually see what he said, hear what he says at the end of that toast, which will be the crux of my next yeah. question. Um, but <laughs> I feel like in that scene, like like Solar was saying, He's not there to celebrate. He's there to make him to to make an appearance to the people and to try to keep everybody positive. Bread and circuses. If you can't control the people, you can't control what happens. So he's just maintaining control and maintaining the peace. That's what I saw. He is a peacekeeper, even if he's a violent one. Now, if you want to talk about who's like... um... Who's like Megor the Cruel? Let's talk Joffrey. Uh-huh. 
you know, I, yeah. I would say Joffrey is much closer to Magor the Cruel than any other king since Magor. Yeah, if only Joffrey <laughs> knew Joffrey how to fight. Joffrey wasn't even a Targaryen. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, whining is an effective weapon. <laughs> yeah. He killed Ned. Um, <laughs> See? <laughs> so, my last question uh, is about that one scene after the after the two deaths, do you think Damon really called baby Balon an heir for a day? Note, we didn't actually hear him say those words at any point. So do you think he actually said it or not? I'm going to go straight to Solar. Yep. <laughs> I do. Because when he was, um, when he was confronted directly with did you call my dead son heir for a day his answer was well we all mourn the way that we mourn your grace he didn't say no he kind of nodded yes and then kind of did the whole excuse thing but yeah he said it in that game of thrones diplomatic way of saying yeah i said it um and it very much had the feel of, I said it, and I didn't mean what you think it means, but it doesn't matter because you've already made up your mind. That's what I saw in that scene. I saw him copping to it. So, or at least copping to saying the words, even if he wasn't meaning what the king interpreted, you know? Yeah. That's what I saw. So, yeah, I think he said it. <laughs> what do you think, Uzma? I don't, I disagree. I don't think he said it uh, because uh, as uh, as you uh, said uh, Solar uh, earlier that we can see he is sad when he is there. Uh, you can see his expression. He is actually grieving. Everyone is around him is enjoying themselves but he is sad. He is not happy. It, it's only when everyone is like silence uh, now he will say something. He gets up to say something but we still don't get to see what he is saying and uh, it's Sir Otto Hightower who brought three uh, witnesses that they said anything. But we have to remember that Tywin and Cersei could bring up ten witnesses and no, none of them could be <laughs> the real witnesses. Like They could all be liars. And as for, con as for the confrontation, I think uh, Damon sometimes t acts more like a teenager or like uh, some when someone gets angry like how dare you don't you trust me they uh, kind of uh, just uh, get angry and they say yes what if I did uh, Tyrion did the same thing to Jamie when uh, when he found out the truth about his wife uh, when uh, Jamie asked him did you kill Joffrey Tyrion was so mad he said yes I killed Joffrey I so I think it's kind of similar here uh, that uh, Damon got angry that he's trusting Otto Hightower over him. And that's why he didn't uh, directly reply. But he didn't say no either. So uh, I would say I trust <laughs> Damon more than Otto. <laughs> so I'm going with Damon. <laughs> it was one of those, well, what I didn't not not say it. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think, uh, Constance? I'm going to agree with you. Um, I don't think he said it exactly the way that Otto did, but Viserys was so locked on that say that anything that Damon said, whether it was yes, I did or no, I didn't, 
He was already, it was already in Viserys' mind that he said it. Otto planted that seed and it had burst into full bloom. So anything that Damon would reply would just, how dare you lie to me if he said no. There's no way that he could have gotten out of that situation. So he took the diplomatic route of, 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 not, of not committing to that answer. So that's, that's what I think happened. Um, because Otto is just that sleazy bastard of the series who we're going to love to hate or we're just going to hate either way. Fuck that um, guy. Yeah, we're going to come up with a theme song for Otto. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Sam, uh, you've been quiet. What's your thought on this? Did he say it or did he not say it? So I kind of, so like, I guess I, whenever Viserys like says to uh, Damon, like an ask him as he says it, I, like I do think that Damon has like kind of like a, regretful look on his face and i feel like that's more at the fact that he like knows that Otto kind of like ratted him out or something i i kind of i feel like that he might not have like said it himself but like the substance of like what he was saying with his like with his um with his with the um the city watch like where they're like they're all chanting for him they're all yelling and he's giving a speech how he's like they talk down on me they do all this i kind of feel like maybe someone maybe in the crowd said it and he didn't necessarily disagree with it or like talk down to it. So it was like, he didn't necessarily say it, but he was like in the presence of it and didn't like deny it either. So I don't, I don't necessarily think that it came out of his mouth, but his like his whole demeanor during that whole thing was kind of just like, they think they can do this and this and this. So I think he was like a part of it, but I don't think it really came out of his mouth. Morgan, what do you think? I think it totally came out of his mouth, but I think, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't think it came out the way that, that Otto said it. Uh, I think it was something along the lines of him saying something like, my poor nephew, he died, only, only heir for a day, or something along those lines, right? Where he said the words... But when taken out of context, they become completely inflammatory. And he wasn't given the context when he was asked by the king what he said. He was just asked, did you say the words? And when he immediately tried to prevaricate, the king was like, no, 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 no. Did you say those words? And he says, we mourn in our own way, right? I was mourning. He doesn't say, I was celebrating. He said, I was mourning. I think he was mourning that his nephew was only heir for a day because I don't think he really wants the job. So that's my thoughts on the matter. Um, but that's it for my questions. That's it for Fire and Blood. Back to you, Sam. Thank you, Morgan. And finally, we have our last segment we have Fans of the Dragon, where Uzma and Constance will give us trivia, polls about the world of ice and fire, and questions and comments from you, the listeners. Uh, all you, Uzma and Constance. All right. Uh, shall we start off with the trivia for this episode? Uh, we've discussed the various characters that we saw in this episode, and there's one that Solar said was his standout favorite, the queen who never was. What does he rename her? What 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 does she become the queen of? That's our trivia for this week. Uh, do you have a poll for us, Uzma? Yeah. The question for the poll 
for this week was which scene was your favorite in the first episode and 41% people voted for uh, Viserys's reveal about Aegon's conquest so definitely that's one of everyone's favorite moments <laughs> probably because of Aegon the connection to game of thrones and uh, because of the music but uh, at 35% uh, 35% people voted for watching dragons flying so that's pretty close too <laughs> everyone loved watching dra- dragons flying and what do we have for uh, who is that dragon are we ready everybody One, two, three. Who's, Who's that, that Dragon? <laughs> Might be the best one yet. Yeah. The third largest dragon, outmatched only by Beleriand and Vagar, this bronze dragon with great wings of leathery tan was one of the few elder dragons that actually witnessed the conquest. His first rider was Jaehaerys, nephew to Maegor the Cruel. Jaehaerys, who had become the conciliator and the old king, who we saw at the beginning of the episode of House of the Dragon and sitting in Harrenhal, His sister Reyna placed a dragon egg in his cradle after his birth, from which our dragon would eventually hatch. Jaehaerys flew this magnificent beast to King's Landing and claimed the Iron Throne nine days after Maegor's well-deserved end. Uh, Jaehaerys loved to go on progress with this dragon, flying as far north as Winterfell and even as far as the Wall. When the Old King dies in 103 AC, our bronze fury retires to Dragonstone without a rider, where he carves his lair out of the smoking volcano. He will make an appearance in the years to come. We shall see him in all his glory and majesty on screen. This week's dragon, Vermithor. And that's it for Who's That Dragimon? Sam, can you take us out? Absolutely. That is our episode. Episode one, we did it. We made it. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at AWPOIAF and Twitter at Ice and Fire Party. Uh, and email us at watchpartyoficeandfire at gmail.com. If you're watching on YouTube, feel free to comment below. A massive thank you to our producer, Jordan Reynolds, for editing and putting the episode together. He is our dragon. Uh, this has been a production of the Watch Party Network. Uh, be sure to check out our friends at Watch Party Lord of the Rings and Watch Party Wheel of Time, releasing episodes every Tuesday. Thank you so, 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 so much for joining us. We are your hosts, Solar. Not today. Constance. Good night. Nurse. Uzma. Villa Mogulis. Morgan. Have a good one. And myself, Sam. <laughs>